So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for our group chats that we have with Marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as Yoromi from Social. And in today's episode, we have a chat with Brendan Candon, who's the co-founder and CEO of Sideline Swap. So Sideline Swap is a marketplace that makes it easy for people to buy and sell sporting goods and equipment. It's scaled to become a category leader, and they've also been listed on A16Z's annual Marketplace 100 as one of the fastest growing marketplaces by GMV. So this is a really great chat with Brennan, where we got to learn more about the founding story for Sideline Swap, how they initially solved the cold start problem, did a deep dive into it as a leading marketplace for buying and selling sporting goods, got to learn more about the growth, what the fundraising journey has been like, and also had a great group Q&A. So really enjoyed this chat, and you're going to find it a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. So Brendan, welcome to the group chat. And I've been super interested to learn more about sideline swaps since I believe I first learned about it from being listed on A16Z's Marketplace 100 list a while back. You know, so really excited to have you join us here today and dive into things with you. Before we do, though, I think it might be great if you can uh, briefly start off by sharing a little bit more in your background, though, for those that uh, might not know you. Sure. So I'm Brendan Candon, co-founder and CEO of Sideline Swap. We're leading online marketplace in sporting goods. Um, think of us like a Poshmark for, for sports. Uh, my background prior to starting Sideline, uh, was a lifelong athlete, grew up in big family, kind of garage full of sporting, sports gear. Uh, and so had always been kind of around the problem my entire life. I played uh, college lacrosse and then I, I stuck around. I coached there for a year after graduation uh, and eventually transitioned. It was working uh for my dad's insurance company and was playing men's lacrosse and or men's lacrosse league and had to buy some new equipment, kind of forgotten how expensive the stuff was and ended up buying some gear used off a friend. Uh, that conversation led us to talking about how no one had made it easier for athletes to buy and sell their gear online. This is like 2012, a little before 2012 when we first launched the MVP. Um, and, you know, we were looking at kind of the verticalization that was starting to happen with Poshmark and fashion, reverb and music equipment, StockX and sneakers, and felt like sports was a massive category that would eventually have its own, uh, vertical marketplace. And so we thought, why not us? And kind of start, started working on it from there. Uh, we were nights and weekends for a little while, um, from 2012 to 2015, but eventually felt like we had enough confidence to jump in full-time in 2015. Uh, that's that's when we went full-time and kind of relaunched the marketplace, the better experience, and uh, have kind of been at it. So added for a long time, but I've had a pretty good run. Yeah, no, that's a really great uh, background. Thanks for uh, sharing with us on that. And also to, uh, you know, founding story for us, Sideline Swap. So if we go back to the very beginning, though, you know, what were some of those first steps that you actually took to start it as a, uh, as a marketplace? Yeah, when, when we got started, um, like I said, it, it started with a conversation between two of us and kind of identifying that that pain point. Um, we didn't have backgrounds in tech, uh, so or you know marketplaces at all. So we kind of had to start from square one. Uh, for us, that was just honestly like buying a bunch of books and reading whatever we could. This t- yeah, communities like this didn't exist. I think it would have been super helpful. Uh, so I'm excited to be a part of it because. We were looking for any resources that we could find at the time, um, but we were kind of self-taught, figured it out, uh, and we we built the first version of the marketplace with an outsourced firm in Eastern Europe uh, and focused on solving like a couple of core issues. Like we wanted to make it really easy to list, 
uh, and you know, easy to buy at the time, like in 2012, when we first launched it, some of the tools weren't available. So we were using kind of a not great PayPal purchase experience, but when it really started to work, we, uh, you know, we had basically figured out there was a few things in our MVP period that, um, customers were gravitating to that we hadn't totally put all the pieces together. Uh, and the main thing was that like, there was a lot of communication happening through chat, uh, but that was decoupled from, uh, the negotiation, the offer experience and the purchase. So we combined the, the chat experience with the, the, um, the offer flow. And like, that was this like kind of pivotal moment for us where by doing that, integrating with Stripe and integrating with easy post at the time for shipments, we kind of put all the pieces together. Uh, and that, that really got our marketplace to take off. And, and that was around 2015. Um, so I think like, yeah, th- those were the, the kind of initial steps for us in terms of like putting the product in place. Now from a marketplace perspective, I think we'll talk more about supply and demand, but we had to figure out how to, um, get the supply side going. Uh, but at a high level, we've always felt like the supply side's the hard side for us. We we could get high quality used gear onto our marketplace. We could grow a lot faster, and we could sell it. Plenty of people shopping for deals and sporting goods, but there's not as many people looking to sell. So we've spent a lot of our time in the early days thinking about how to unlock high quality supply uh, and really focused on um, the quality piece of it, not just any uh, supply. But how do we get inventory from like college athletes or pro athletes who could help draw uh eyeballs into the marketplace and then on the, on the demand side it was a lot of social media in the beginning we were able to hit million dollars in gmv without really spending any money on marketing um and i could talk a little bit about how we did that but those were those were kind of the first steps I and mean, the, the team piece over time we ended up bringing uh an engineering team in-house and so we moved from an offshore uh, web development firm to to an in-house team uh and yeah so i mean like happy to dive in on different pieces of that but that that's kind of where we got started at a high level really self-taught and just figured it out as we went yeah no that's uh that's great and that uh, d- definitely has somewhat relatable to a lot of uh, founders here you got some uh, got a few head nods there so, so so you did uh of course mention as far as like on, on the supply side right so like how did you initially kind of get those first, you know, listings on, on your platform? And then, you know, maybe over the course to like that, you know, a million in kind of GMV, what were some ways that, you know, you initially kind of like attracted and onboarded that first supply? So when we got started, we, uh, we, we had the benefit of having some connections in some of our target sports. So I guess like one starting point is that we didn't try to launch a sports marketplace Well. We always positioned it as a marketplace for sports, but we knew we needed to start with a smaller focus. So similar to the way like Airbnb or Uber would focus on like a specific city, we focused on one sport to start. And for us, that was lacrosse um, because we had connections there. The site was always set up with all the other categories, at least like at a high level where you could shop hockey, baseball. But there really wasn't a ton of inventory there. And we didn't spend a lot of resources trying to generate aggregate uh, demand or supply. So we really launched with like 10 or 15 former, like recently graduated college athletes, small Americans who played at Maryland, Duke. And we were able to populate the marketplace with their supply initially. And so it was really like 10 people, a hundred items when we got started. 
And then there were some forums and Facebook groups that existed at the time where these transactions were taking place in a much more like high friction environment. And so once this the, the platform was built and we kind of were managing these sellers' accounts, even though the inventory, some cases it was at my house, some cases it was at theirs. Um, but we really like hacked the, it in the beginning to get the flywheel going. Uh, and we would take the inventory and post it into the Facebook groups and forums. And then we'd be like chatting, like saying like, hey, this is listed for sale on sideline. You should go over there and shop for it. We would position ourselves like basically catfishing people like as the the, the athlete that they thought who was listing the stuff. Uh, and so the, at the high school player, usually in most cases, would come over, find out about sideline swap, they'd buy that product. But then the product was then set up to convert them to a seller. So they were thinking, well, if the top college athletes are using this, then I should use this too. And so with by kind of taking that approach and then going to more and more sellers at the college and, and pro level and bringing more people in, we were able to really build a bunch of momentum and get to tens of thousands of sellers, really mostly focused in lacrosse, or at least tens of thousands of listings, uh, and get the beginning of the momentum going. There were points along the way where, yeah, that obviously doesn't scale. And so we had to go find sellers who had larger quantities of gear. We found power sellers in Facebook groups and forums. We would like, kind of work closely with them to bring them on. We did peer-to-peer growth hacking too. Uh, and I'd say like as the marketplace evolved, that strategy evolved. So it went from this like really grassroots, like hand-to-hand combat type stuff to building tech tools for eBay sellers to come over more easily and eventually for other stores who had used inventory to come on. So the supply side evolved and now we have a pretty big B2C element to our marketplace. Uh, But in the early days, it was really kind of anything that we could do to get sellers onto the platform. Uh, but always a focus on on quality of supply and focused on uh, specific sports at a time. So we went from lacrosse to hockey, then to baseball, then to golf and skiing and snowboarding. And each subsequent sport's gotten easier and easier. But we've tried to be thoughtful about which categories we go into. Um, and and the quality piece was always like, if we start up market and have really high quality supply to begin with, uh, it was curation in a way, right? Where by focusing on which types of sellers we were bringing on, the quality of inventory you saw when you came onto the marketplace was higher. And so then the buyers came on, had a better experience, and then they would list their inventory too. You know, that was more generic stuff, but priced really well. Uh, and and uh, yeah, that that seemed to work. So that was that was our approach in the beginning. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely really cool to, you know, to tell a little bit more about it. sounds like I d- doing a lot of the uh, kind of manual of things that don't scale, right? In the very beginning, the kind of tactics and uh, strategies, you know, and also to kind of overcoming the, uh, the cold start problem that, of course, we all face there. So well, we're going to get into with some other uh, topics um, that, that you also mentioned there. Uh, but I guess for a little bit of context, though, could you kind of give us a, a brief overview maybe of a sideline swap as a, as a marketplace today before we uh, dive into things more? Absolutely. So we are... Uh have started as a pure play market vertical marketplace where we connect buyers and sellers. We take a uh, 12 to 15% fee uh, from the seller on the transaction. Uh, and we make it easy to you know, list your gear in seconds through our app or our website. Uh, and then we 
offer a buyer guarantee and facilitate seamless transactions that includes uh, you can purchase at a buy now, you can make an offer and negotiate, you can chat with the seller uh, throughout the, the negotiation, and then buyers pay for prepaid or pay for shipping. So the seller receives a prepaid shipping label when the item sells. Um, the yeah, and that that was basically our marketplace uh, or the bones of it at least from 2015 to about last year. We've always felt that in our in sporting goods that there's a Poshmark customer and a thread up customer is the way I think about it. So the we were started as Poshmark for sports where we connect buyers and sellers and, and we just take a cut on the transaction. But there's definite friction around shipping, specifically on bigger items like hockey sticks, golf clubs, baseball bats. Uh, and so we always felt like there's a lot more opportunity on the supply side that's locked in people's homes and their garages that's not currently making its way onto a marketplace. And that's the biggest opportunity to us. It's not how do we get inventory from eBay to sideline. It's more how do we unlock supply that's that's not making its way online up to this point. So last year, we launched a new part of our business called our trade-in platform, where we partner with retailers like Dick's Sporting Goods to turn their customers' used gear into gift cards. So uh, this year, we ran 500 trade-in pop-up trade-in events where you could go to a, a Dick store and trade in your used that gear. We evaluated on the spot based on some custom tech that we've built. It's based on our marketplace pricing data. And then we'll pay, pay the customer and issue them a, a Dick's gift card. Uh, and then that inventory makes its way back onto a sideline to be resold on the platform. In some of those cases, we hold the inventory first party. In other cases, sellers run the events. Um, but for us, it's been a really successful way to continue to unlock more inventory and grow the platform. So, you know, we've, we've added a bunch of high quality supply. We've grown a bunch of brand exposure through these retail partnerships. We work with several retailers brands, uh, and then, you know, that just then feeds the marketplace because buyers come on, find better selection, 20, you know, about 30% of buyers convert to sellers. And so kind of continues to accelerate the flywheel and we've seen um that part of the business grow really quickly but also feed like accelerate growth on the marketplace side so we think they uh they work together really well yeah Def- definitely that sounds like it and i'm glad i'm glad you i mentioned it because that was uh, something i wanted to uh to, to talk about you know i guess uh, to turn a little bit more about it though you know um so if we kind of go back you know how did you think about like initially kind of um launching that or kind of rolling it out as a marketplace and I guess if we kind of like fast forward to today, you know, what have been uh, some of the biggest uh, learnings from it so far? It was kind of always in the back of our mind that if we got far enough along, like it's hard to build a marketplace. And so you, I think it's hard to do all this at once. And you kind of had to pick which one were you going to go after. And we obviously picked the pure play marketplace to start. Um, but we always felt like there was an opportunity to build this second part of the business. So in 2019, I hired a VP of partnerships who had spent a lot of time in the used golf space. We started talking through some of these ideas of like what this could look like in our business model. Uh, we started conversations with retail partners and, and gained some momentum with Dick Sporting Goods. Uh, and so we started with a single pop-up event. We ran a pop-up event in Livonia, Michigan with a hockey store and set up at 10 a.m. No idea if anybody's going to show up. 
Uh, and yeah, before we're even done setting up, people are getting out of their cars with bags full of equipment. You know, can't believe you guys are here. This is amazing. We love this. And yeah, I've been to probably over a hundred trade in events in the last two years all around the country. It's been really cool. I mean, it really validates what we believed was out there that there's a ton of, a ton of people inventory in people's homes. They just want an easier way to sell it. So started with one pop-up event. Then we had to like refine the playbook. We did 14 events last spring. We did 50 last fall. And then we did 500 this year. So, um, yeah, that was kind of refining the playbook, figuring out how to make this whole thing work. Uh, and I think like there's a, a ton of learnings. Like the last two years for us have been have been crazy. But I think the the main things are that there's yeah I do think there's two types of sellers out there uh, that. Yeah, there's people who want to do the work and earn as much as possible. You know, we have, you know, for them, that's the Poshmark model. We, we support that. I think the other, it, you know, there is a thread up seller who just has really good stuff, but doesn't want to do the work to sell it themselves. And so uh, you can give that person less money, right? And you're they're going to earn less by not having to do any of the work, but uh, you can get them, sell it at higher margin and run that business efficiently. Uh, and you know, those two can, can both feed the, the demand on the marketplace. Um, yeah, I think like the, uh, the other, maybe one other like interesting learning from as the, as the business has evolved is that sometimes it can be challenging as a marketplace to compete against retailers who have much higher margin. Like we don't think about, uh, so we, we spend a lot of money on performance marketing. Um, we don't compete just for used terms. If someone's shopping for hockey skates, we want them, even if they're shopping for new, we want them to consider used. And But you're competing against a retailer who has like 40, 50% plus margin where you're taking 10%. And so like sometimes that could be a challenge, but by owning some inventory, uh, it can be helpful uh, to create a more level playing field as you're getting the flywheel going. Um, so that's been an, you know, a benefit of, of the evolution in our business is that it allows us to think about our union economics a little bit differently on the marketing front. Um, there's a lot more, but I'll, uh, I'll kind of pause there for now. You know, those are definitely some uh, great learning. I know they're going to lead to some uh, questions uh, once we kind of get into them. So, uh, so another thing, so of course, you've been uh, mentioned on the A16Z's uh, Marketplace 100 list is uh, one of the fastest growing uh, marketplaces by GMB. So of course, we couldn't go, uh, go to the group chat without uh, discussing uh, growth. So could you uh, maybe share a little bit more about, you know, how you thought about a uh, uh, growth? In the earliest phases, I mentioned like, you know, we didn't, we didn't raise money until after we'd like cleared the million dollar GMB run rate by quite a bit. Um, so we had to figure out how to get the thing going without that. At the time the the marketing landscape was a little bit different. So we were able to leverage Instagram uh, quite a bit in the kind of glory days of, of, being able to grow a large Instagram account and uh, reach your audience without spending a ton of money. So what we did there was we, we thought about, which I think still applies, What if we just posted pictures of used sports equipment all day on Instagram, um, that, that wouldn't have gained half a million followers organically. What we realized is that our customers were interested in sports and what a sports customer is like, they like to watch highlights. And so we built verticalized Instagram accounts. So if you go, you'll see like we have a lacrosse account, a hockey account, a baseball account, a ski account, a golf account. 
And it was a lot of work. And one of my co-founders ran the strategy and executed extremely well on it. Um, but we would put out a lot of like cool, unique content that we would find or would get sent to us from like high school, college, in college games and a lot of times uh, that would draw a lot of attention and engagement. And so we'd like draw you in with highlights and then intermix sport like deals and sports gear in there. And that helped continue to pull people in. And you could think of like, there's all different ways you could think about that content strategy. But for us, that was like content plus commerce, right? And community is an element to it as well. Uh, so that worked for a while uh, until, you know, Facebook tried to started to tighten uh, things up and you had to spend a lot more to reach your audience. And so then you kind of have to evolve your strategy and then it became a performance marketing game. One of the big things we learned there over time is that uh, our economics started to deteriorate as we were trying to ramp our spend. And I think what we realized over time was that it was actually constrained by the supply side, that there was a pretty clear connection between how much we could spend versus how much inventory we had available. If you think about it, right? Like you only have a thousand listings. You can only spend so much against those thousand listings before your economics start to to go uh, start, start to look pretty ugly. Um, but we couldn't grow the supply side fast enough. We had to grow GMV, so we were spending, spending, spending against that, and our our economics started to get out of whack. COVID was a bit of a reset, um, and you know SEO has always been a big channel for us, but we really doubled down there and have had success growing through organic search, although that's becoming harder. Uh, but I think what we did was we really uh, took that that um, realization around lim- the supply being a limiting factor on your ability to spend and grow and really reshifted focus to the supply side that we can continue to scale spend relatively easily if we had enough supply. So how do we get enough supply? And so the growth strategy kind of shifted back to there that was all, we had kind of stopped because it was hard. We had tapped out to building B2C tools or or we had kind of felt like we were hitting diminishing returns. So the next thing was to actually do the hard thing, which was to launch trade-in, and that's worked really well. Um, so I think it's like understanding what are the limit, like where are the free growth channels and like what's a content strategy that can work to help you reach your customer in a way that makes sense for them. Uh, and then what's the limiting factor on growth and how do you best address that? Yeah, you know, if there are ways to unlock differentiated supply in, in your market, and you know that becomes the growth channel, then that's great. Sometimes it's it's not that easy, and sometimes you have to do something that's a little bit harder. Uh, but that's what we've done, and and that's worked pretty well. Yeah, no, it's all it's always uh, great to hear as as far as the uh, growth strategies and uh, even some of the kind of tactics, right? And uh, one of the most common things is, uh, you know, founders and teams saying that it, it works until it doesn't with uh, marketplaces. So. Yeah. Yeah. You constantly have to evolve your strategy. And um, I think be planting the seed and testing for the next thing, because if you wait until, you know, that runs out, then you're, you hit this like really uncomfortable period where you just don't know what to do. But if you are constantly testing like one or two or three other strategies, not knowing which one's going to work. So that you're you're you kind of have multiple, ideally multiple lanes open at once, but always like have a chance to jump from you know as one drives up, jump to the next well that uh, is going to feed the business. Yeah, certainly. 
So you uh, you briefly mentioned uh, you know your uh, first uh, you know your first round of, uh, of of funding, um, but you've of course now raised from uh, some pretty awesome investors uh, as far as like eBay eBay Ventures, uh, even you know Dick's uh, supporting goods uh, venture arm and uh, and FJ Labs. So could you could you uh, maybe share a little bit more about you know what the uh, fundraising journey has been like? Yep, absolutely. So we've raised about eighteen million to date. Uh, we did uh two seed rounds to raise a $1.8 million seed round while we were in 500 startups. So we went through a couple of accelerators. We did uh, 500 startups. We did Mass Challenge before that. We did the Harvard iLab as well. Those were all great for, for us. We raised our, our seed round, which is kind of like a party angel round, uh, but got some institutional investors in on the like end of that round including Global Founders Capital, who ended up leading our Series A and FJ Labs. Um, and we did another seed round, and then we did a Series A, which we kept, uh, we raised on in 2018 and 2019. Um, so yeah, the fundraising journey is, is tough. I think like, especially in the early stages, uh, some things that I found is that you have to be thinking multiple steps ahead. Uh, if you're just focused on like, what the next 18 months looks like you have to realize that the investor is trying to determine not just what are you going to do with the first two million dollars you raise but like most marketplaces take significant capital to build and scale so are you going to be able to raise your series a and series b and is the market big enough to do those things is this you know seed check we write going to be enough to get you to your series A round, what are the milestones for that series A? How much GMV do you have to have? What's your take rate need to be? And what's your growth rate need to be? And can you get there in a reasonable amount of time? And then there's thinking another step ahead too, because like an A is probably not enough, or at least it wasn't in our case. So, you know, then you have to be able to raise a B. How big is that round? What valuation does that require? So I think like being able to think multiple steps ahead and communicate that to investors was really helpful. Because it showed that we weren't just thinking about the the step right in front of us. We were thinking multiple steps ahead and like how all the pieces were going to fit together and being able to talk to that in a, uh, I think, thoughtful way is really important. Um, and yeah, I think it's just like also finding, I think it's hard to convince investors that your market's big enough. I think like what I realized over time is that Sometimes we sit down in a meeting and people be like, oh, the sports market's huge. Like, this is a great market. And then other times we'd sit down and be like, who wants to buy used sporting goods? Like, is this a big enough market? And I never, I never changed their mind on that. I mean, we have, it's the first slide in our deck. We're always talking about Tam. We think the opportunity is huge. But I think you kind of get people who are either excited about your market or aren't. And I think started to realize that, like, if I, if you're not excited about our market, our market and sports market, kind of at the beginning of the meeting, then like, I should probably just get up and leave. Like it's, it's going to be a really tough conversation. So I think like investing time and, and building a relationship and continuing to keep investors updated who are excited about your market, but maybe not there yet on where you are in the life cycle, uh, is something that worked really well for us. A lot of investors said no before they said yes. Um, especially in the very beginning while we were tra- like keeping them updated of, you know, here's our growth this month, here's our growth this month. And and eventually, uh, I think they started to see that we were executing, especially as founders with no background, right? We, we didn't have like uh, a strong resume to point to. 
we had to point to our own numbers and improve it. And so we would keep people updated. And through that spring of 2016, we were able to start to to get some checks in and build momentum and and get the thing done. So those are some of the, the keys from our fundraising story. That's really great. So I feel like uh, you and I could probably go on uh, for quite some time here. And I promised uh, founders that we'd uh, you know, save time for a group Q&A so they could come on here. So we'll uh, get to some uh, questions if that sounds good to you. Hey, uh, hey, Paris, did, did you want to come on first? Um, yeah. So one of my questions was, uh, can you talk through kind of like the transaction flow when it comes to how you think about refunding on the platform if cases like that arise and how that has evolved over time? Yeah. So we offer a buyer guarantee. We... Uh, buyers pay up front. We hold the funds. They show up in the account for the seller, uh, but you can't actually cash them out until the item has been received and as advertised condition. So um, the we, we provide shipping labels where you have to link, you know, pro- you can provide your own, but for a long time, it was only labels we provided, which allows us to track the shipment. So we know when the item gets delivered. Buyers have three days to, to review the product where they can approve it right away. So the seller will get paid upon approval or three days. So if some, the buyer just like never does anything, the funds will get released. We assume that's a successful sale. If there's a dispute or the item never arrives, uh, we, you know, the, the buyer gets refunded. Uh, we have a dispute team that kind of looks, reviews everything. It's, it's actually a pretty small. Um, number of cases where disputes arise, but you know, buyer it guarantees and security are extremely important. Um, and so, yeah, we we try to obviously balance the seller and buyer considerations in it. But um, you know, we we control the funds until we have you know we are confident that the transactions gotten to a point where buyer and seller are happy, and at that point. The seller gets paid um, if we reroute the funds to the the buyer, and there's a refund. Um, yeah, it usually just goes back to their card. There are cases where they have to return the shipment first, and we hold the payment longer. Um, but yeah, that's like the basic mechanics of it. That buyer guarantee is stuff like core to our platform. That's a great question, and uh, definitely one that comes up uh, quite often with uh, you know peer to peer marketplaces here in the community. Hey, uh, Brendan, actually, I had a somewhat related question that someone asked uh, uh, um, or sent to me earlier, which was around uh, trust, and you know, with that kind of buyer guarantee, you know, like at at, uh, at what stage did you offer that, and maybe what are some other ways that um, you've kind of built trust on the buyer side? I mean, we offered it from the beginning. Uh, well, I get at least since 2015. Um, so it was always always core to the, that was like the key piece that we put in place to get this thing working um and in terms of like other factors for trust that that chat feature allows buyers and sellers to communicate Yeah, you, know, you get some sellers who maybe their businesses and they feel like they don't have you know it's a lot it could be time intensive but we feel like it's really core to our shopping experience and if you're going to buy used online that that provides this like important layer of trust building. Um, we have profiles and feedback. You know, I think like there's a lot of marketplace basics providing updates throughout the shipping and transaction experience and transparency around the status of your orders. All that matters. But um, I would say the buyer guarantee, like the flow of funds and the uh, 
the messaging piece are, are kind of the two key pieces. Cool. Hey, uh, hey, Blake, you uh, want to jump on? Saw you raise raise your hand there. Yeah, um, I'm really curious about how you've thought about and how successful you've been in cross pollination of different verticals with users. Um, I would imagine with sports specifically, you know, people have their sport, right? They they play lacrosse or they play baseball. Maybe with kids, you're a little bit more successful when they're trying other sports. But at Uber and beyond, I think my team and I have been consistently overly bullish on how successful we'd be on on upselling across verticals. So just curious how successful you've been there. Um, and has it been naturally successful or have you had to experiment a lot with uh, with making that successful? Yeah, great question. I think I would agree that we, well, I think your assumptions are right, right? That like people are a one typically more focused on specific sports. And I think that was especially true early on where like we were in lacrosse and hockey and then baseball, like there's it's actually pretty minimal overlap, especially at like the high school level there where people start to get pretty serious about it. The youth level, there's more cross-pollination. So as we've gotten better selection of used inventory, we start, I think that's helped drive better adoption. The other thing is like more um, uh, like individual hobby sports. So golf and skiing have a better, like we're more likely to get you into those sports next, right? From hockey to golf and hockey to skiing. Then we are from hockey to lacrosse uh, or tennis, right? Like those are, so I think we're starting to fill those out. Apparel is a big crossover, although you could debate like, is that a, is like apparel sometimes lives within hockey or lives within um, baseball. So uh, I'd say you're right that it's hard. I think we've been like moderately successful. At times we've like tried to make these bigger pushes to drive, um, increased cross-pollination and with minimal success be honestly like it hasn't been as much of a priority for us i think the way we've thought about it for the last year or two is is really again like this focus on supply like let's get as much high quality supply across as many sports as we can and that will be the best way to lift um kind of the the tide in all other sports and we are seeing that with trade-in it's like um and it's hard to get a sport like tennis where it's not a focus to like build the supply side there. So trade-ins like helped us build higher quality supply across more categories, which creates more opportunities for cross-pollination without necessarily marketing. And I think we're we're trying to find ways to do it more in product and through email communication of what are the right touch points to do it. I wouldn't say we've totally cracked it. I'd be probably I'd love to talk more about like what you guys have seen and talk about some ideas. But yeah, it's it's been a challenge overall to to get that to really happen yeah makes sense appreciate it man awesome that's a great question hey actually uh, robin had a question in the in the chat which was on uh on disintermediation and uh you know asking is that uh, is it was di- disintermediation a problem and you know if so um how is it something that you've uh, kind of overcome so disintermediation has not been a huge challenge for us luckily um there's no geographic concentration in our marketplace so we don't we don't even enable local pickup uh, so, and, and the reason for that is we think in sports, it's actually like, I think all, all categories are more technical than you think on the surface, right? People aren't just shopping for a baseball bat. You're shopping for a BB core drop three, you know, composite Rollins Quattro pro bat. And like, that's specifically what you're looking for. If you try to drill one, you can't drill into that on Facebook marketplace. There's this criteria doesn't exist. And two, if you 
found if you did just do that search, you're going to get zero results within a 25 mile radius in most cases. So we think like eBay is better than Craigslist in the sporting goods category because it's technical. You need to be able to search across all geographies in order to find the specific product that you want and that the shipping cost isn't prohibiting from facility from doing that. So, you know, that's all to say that like geogra- geography is important, I think, on disintermediation. And in our case, we've been able to facilitate most transactions across the country, you know, and from anywhere to anywhere. Uh, and so that means you're very rarely buying from the same person twice. There's like some customer bu- buyer seller loyalty, but, but that's pretty rare. So you're typically starting with a product search. That product's typically not in your area. So you need, your selection is more important to you than like speed or, or somebody down the block and sh- shipping's not prohibitive. Uh, and so we, and, and then you're not buying from the same person over and over. For all those reasons, like we just haven't had to deal with disintermediation quite as much. Uh, and you know, lucky, you know, I think I'm thankful for that because that, that's a hard problem to solve. But I think like we try, you know, we may enable local pickup at some point and, you know, we try to make it really easy for sellers. Like I think the better your platform is that you save them time, you save them headaches, the more likely they are to just keep it on the platform. Obviously they can connect and go create a shipping label outside, but buyers and sellers have incentives to keep their transactions on sideline because of the buyer guarantee, because the shipping labels are paid for by the buyer. Um, you know, all these things make it so that way you have less of a reason to go off platform feedback creates another loop that keeps you on. So I think there's all these pieces you can put in place. And then we do some like stuff within the chat interface where people are trying to exchange phone numbers or emails, they'll get a friendly, sometimes not so friendly prompt from Sidebot saying like, Hey, like there's risks with going off platform. You should, you know, here's why you should keep your transactions here. I think those things have been really effective. So, you know, it's not like nobody's trying to. I think we've intentionally put a bunch of pieces in place to make strong incentives for buyers and sellers. We have these like natural reasons in our market where uh, they don't go off platform. And then we provide gentle reminders and we'll kick people off platform where they don't listen, where you get restricted and banned, as I call these levels to it, to make sure we preserve the integrity of the marketplace. That's going to be really helpful. No, d- definitely a- interesting. And uh, as far as, you know, the, the dimension, as far as the category kind of considerations and nuances, we probably have a whole uh, conversation on that alone. So cool. So we have time for uh, one more question. I know, uh, hey, Drew, you uh, sent me a message. Do you, uh, do you want to come on? Um, so you mentioned uh, owning inventory to sort of uh, compete with retailers that have a higher margin. Um, is that something you all are still looking to like scale and expand upon and do you feel like owning inventory is potentially like a conflicting pitch to sellers um maybe things for like brand new specifically um just kind of what's your take on uh, and i assume you're selling the you know the the gear from your trade-ins um so you're kind of kind of headed down that road anyway so i kind of just want to get your insights on that yeah so that's the only stuff we sell is from the trade-in um events that we run it's forced us to build a better marketplace because now we're feeling the pain points our sellers are. Um, so uh, I think like that's part of it. It's like one, we we use the same tools that they use to sell in the marketplace. Like we can only do what they could do. Uh, we also give them, we're, we're uh, making the tools that we use for our trade-in events available to our sellers. 
So our goal, like I would love to never have had to do trade-in events. Like if we could have just been Poshmark and it was just growing like crazy and we didn't have to think about it, like that would have been awesome. But we just weren't getting enough supply and there weren't enough aggregators in our category. Um, so we felt like we had to put build some tools and go do these things to help, you know, satisfy the demand side, basically. And we are teaching our sellers to do the same things that we are. We'll like show them our warehouse operations and show them our, uh, you know, here's how we run trading events. Like we would love for them to go do these things and take a step back. If we're not running, you know, trading events in a couple of years that because our sellers copied us and figured it all out and have grown the sporting goods mark used market significantly. And we could just sit on top of that as a marketplace. I'll be totally happy, right? Like that, that would be great. I don't know if that will happen, but like our thinking is that trade-in is like our, our North star at the end of the day is to provide the best selection of inventory at the best prices. So that way we can build the largest marketplace in sports. And, you know, it's not necessarily, it's not Shopify's mission to like serve service sellers, right? Cause like that isn't, that is not our goal. Our goal is to build the largest marketplace, the largest selection. And so we think about trade-in within that, right? Like, okay, we can turn this on and have it thread up and Poshmark live side by side uh, and and then put some real guardrails around ourselves. So we're not cheating. We're not like doing this with an unfair advantage. And we're actually helping them because we're doing all the R&D, figuring out all the stuff and then giving our sellers tools where they're interested to compete with us and hopefully overtake us eventually. We'll see. I think we have a pretty unique thesis on this, but like that's the way we believe like our market could play out. So that's what we're we're trying. Awesome. That's, that's a great uh, great last question. So, so we're almost out of time here, uh, Brendan. So I definitely want to be uh, conscious of that. But this is a, such a fun chat, and I appreciate you know also uh, kind of getting a little bit deeper on the, some of the questions that we had here during the uh, Q and A. Um, so I had actually uh, one last question for you before we wrap things up, though, and that's if uh, if you could go right back to before you uh, started Sideline Swap, you know, what would you uh, tell yourself about marketplaces more specifically? It's so hard. Marketplaces are hard. Marketplaces are a hard business to build. and They take a long time. I think uh, we always believe that there will be a sports marketplace. And I was just like, once we got going, we could not imagine the world without it. That like played against sports or will exist online, right? And that we could, you know, no one was building it, so why not us? Why not us is like our first core value. Um, and and so I think it's like the, I forget what the Paul Graham line is, but like if you're pretty good at it, like it's going to take, you know, at least f- five years. If you're really good, if it works you know, really well, it's going to take like 10 years to get to an exit. And if it works like the best you could ever imagine, you might never do anything else. So I think it's just like, you better really love the problem that you're focused on and like be really excited about it. Um, and just like, yeah, I think you're going to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, at the same time, I think it's better to just like the naivety is like a blessing. I don't think we thought that much about anything. We just got going. And uh, if we had known all the pain, we probably may, you know, we may have gotten deterred. Uh, so I think it's good to just get going. But I think at the end of the day, you got to really love the problem that you're focused on. Definitely agree with you on that. So, and then last but not least, time for a quick plug. Where can we uh, keep up with you at? Uh, LinkedIn is, is probably best. Um, on Twitter, I don't tweet that much. Uh, so, yeah, either either one of those are good. We once again really appreciate you know taking the time to join us here today. And uh, yeah, thanks everyone for the uh, great questions. 
So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplaces community with Marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a Marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.